Now, the entire nature of this show is to overthink movies and delve into how they're made and what compelled people to make them. And in a lot of situations, the stories about the film not only expand upon and add color to the film's understanding, uh, in a lot of cases they can be more interesting than the film itself. Case in point, Bloodsport, the 1988 Canon Films uh, action movie that launched the career of uh, the muscles from Brussels, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And this will be going briefly over the movie's barely there plot, and then spending a lot of time going upon uh, uh, this movie's long afterlife and lots of intersectional drama. Uh, Ooh, goody. I mean, I just watched the movie with you, and I thought it was fun for what it is. Uh, yes, and also, uh, after going into some movies with uh, some heavier subtext, uh, as we discussed in our uh, closing minutes of uh, Run, Lola, Run, kind of wanted to do something like simple and fun and gleefully silly, and uh, <laughs> this film qualifies. Uh, oh yeah, there's, there's no philosophical undertones to this. Well, not on purpose. Yeah. Uh, my name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. And I'm Rachel, back again because I live here. Yep. Okay, so yeah, we uh, Bloodsport is a new film for both of us. Uh, I picked it up uh, at a in like a dollar bin at some like random grocery store while I was picking up like a emergency tire filling thing because you know busted a tire. So yeah, I spent I I think two dollars and fifty cents because it was, on a, it was on a double bill with Ninja Assassin, and we just watched it one night and we we're like, wow, this is not this is, this is Bloodsport, all right? Yeah, you feel like you got your money's worth. Uh, yeah, I yeah, I, that was $2.50 well spent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never really seen him in anything where he's so baby-faced. I know, I know. He's, he's, he's very, very young in this. I know. I mean, he's only 59 now, so. Yeah, I mean, he'd be an infant back then. <laughs> okay, this movie stent- centers on United States Army Captain Frank Dukes. It- Spelled D-U-X. Yeah, that tripped you up for a bit. Yeah, but it is a line of contentious dialogue in the film itself. Anyways, he's a man trained in ninjutsu under his sensei, uh, Senzo Tanaka. As a child, during um, a very extended flashback... Oh my god, it is so extensive. Duke's reminiscence about uh, how his friends broke into Tanaka's house to steal a katana. Uh, Duke's was the only one who was caught, but Tanaka was impressed by Duke's integrity and toughness. Senzo uh, decides to allow Duke's to train alongside his son Shingo. Poor Shingo. Yeah, Shingo dies while competing in the Kumite. In a... Was that ever really confirmed? I mean, that was the impression that I got. I don't think the film, like, really pressed it upon too much. But yes, Shingo dies. Yeah, Shingo dies. I mean, I guess he probably died in, like, the Kumite. I mean, I feel... You're, I know you're going to probably go into it in more detail later, but it would have been kind of nice to have Dukes be like, I'm here to avenge my foster brother's death, you know? <laughs> The Kumite is an elite martial arts tournament based in Hong Kong where a bunch of different fighters of various disciplines compete against each other, which means in this film, lots of tiny little uh, middleweight boxers are fighting guys who are like a foot taller than them and have a good 20 pounds. Yeah, there are no weight classes here. It's just luck of the draw. Anyways, after Shingo dies, 
Dukes, determined to honor Senzo's legacy, finishes his training as an honorary member of the Tanaka clan. Dukes is eventually invited to compete in the Kumite himself, but the army doesn't want him to risk injury in the competition. They've dumped a lot of time and resources into making him like an elite fighter and some kind of special ops, vaguely defined action movie commando type of deal. Yeah, and that isn't even like really specified. They're like, no, he can't leave. And I'm like, is it just, is he like away without leave or what? Well, when he's in his office, he's talking about how he did get leave, but they're telling him not to go to Hong Kong specifically. Yeah, I guess. We're thinking about this more than the screenwriter of the film itself. Yeah, obviously. I mean, we didn't come here for plot. We came here for ass kicking. Dukes defies his orders and leaves for Hong Kong anyways. The Criminal Investigation Command sends two officers, Helmer and Rollins, to uh, track down and arrest him. And one of them is Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, baby Forrest Whitaker. He has, like, little chubby cheeks. He does not look as intimidating as he does now. Anyways, after arriving in Hong Kong, Dukes befriends the earthy and just sort of rough-around-the-edges American fighter Ray Jackson, and also his guide, Victor Lin. Now, uh, Jackson is introduced while uh, he and Dukes are both on, like, a bus, and he just kind of starts playfully sexually harassing the woman in the seat. And you thought that Dukes was going to go, like, confront him about being cruel to the lady, and they- they'd have a fight, and Dukes would both display his honor and his and his fighting prowess, but that's not how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I guess because this is, a, as I'm sure you're going to go into later, kind of a ripoff of Enter the Dragon, and, you know, Bruce Lee, he... Throw the guy tricks like the jerk into being in the boat, separate from everybody else at the beginning of the movie to show that he can, you know, win through nonviolence. Yeah, this one doesn't think too much about that sort of thing. Uh, Dukes and Ray just sort of play this 8-bit fighting video game together, and then suddenly they're besties. Yeah, and and Ray Jackson, he looks like what you could consider a human version of Chewbacca, but kind of like a redneck. He's always wearing Harley Davidson gear. I tried to look up whether or not there was product placement in the film. Uh, I couldn't find evidence one way or the other. Maybe it's true, or maybe they just thought Harley Davidson would, you know, give you some kind of visual shorthand to what kind of character Ray is. Yeah, I mean, he ended up being one of my favorite characters just because he's so stupid. <laughs> The Kumite's officials are initially skeptical about uh, Dukes' legitimacy, but he convinces them that he belongs in the tournament by performing the death touch on a stack of bricks. This is when you karate chop a stack of bricks, but you only break the one on the bottom. Yeah, they're surprised because he's, you know, clearly a white guy and Tanaka is a Japanese last name. Yeah, the, this is a, like a, a white savior movie where the Western European white dude shows up and demonstrates that he's better at kung fu than the Asians, by the way. Yeah, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> On the first day of the Kumite, uh, Dukes earns the enmity of the ruthless champion Chong Lee by breaking his record for the fastest KO on some random guy. Oh, yeah. Now, while the Kumite is going through its three days, Dukes becomes romantically uh, linked with Janice Kent, an American journalist investigating the Kumite. She's literally there to be a woman. You could just not have her in the film at all. She lifts right out. Yep. After uh, Dukes refuses to help her sneak into the tournament, she gets in by agreeing to a date with a wealthy spectator, and she comes in with, like, big old Vanna Whitehair. because 1988. In this round, Dukes has to fight this big sumo guy, which sets up the most infamous scene in the film, where he does one of his famous Jean-Claude Van Damme splits and then punches him in the balls. Yeah, it, it's awesome. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, that, that scene is pretty rad. And Jackson, however, is pitted against Chong Lee. And initially, he gets the upper hand on Chong Lee, but he starts turning to the crowd to boast about how great he is. And then Chong Lee gets a second win and viciously beats Jackson almost to the point of death. I seriously thought that they were going to kill him, but it made me think that maybe they originally were like, Harry, he is going to die because you can kill people in the Kumite without any punishment. But they didn't. He survived. And I think that Jackson forgot this is like a super serious martial arts, uh, you know, tournament and not the freaking WWE. Dukes visits Jackson in the hospital afterwards and vows to avenge him. Janice, who is concerned with uh, Dukes' safety, I mean, they, they just have such a connection. Oh my god, the romance is so bland. <laughs> yeah, she tries to pressure him to leave the tournament, but he says he has to be the best that he is at what he does. And then it cuts to him doing another split while doing, like, Tai Chi moves in front of you. Uh, at least I think that's supposed to be Tai Chi. It almost looks like he's going to do the Itsy Bitsy Spider. Yeah, I mean, I, you just kind of figure that he's doing something and it's supposed to be spiritual. Yeah, there he goes doing that. The one trick that he's good at, Jean-Claude Van Damme does his split. Meanwhile, uh, Helmer and Rollins uh, arrive in Hong Kong, and they contact the local police, who were not especially helpful. The Kumite is an elite underground and technically illegal tournament organized by the Chinese mafia, referred to as the Triad in this. Uh, so, you know, the local cops aren't going to bring them along. However, Rollins and uh, Helmer track Dukes at his hotel, and he leads them on a chase scene where it ends where they fall into a canal. Yeah, it's very, uh, you know, Looney Tunes. There's this random, like, slapsticky uh, Buster Keaton chase scene in the middle of um, Bloodsport. Yeah, and it should be mentioned that, that at the time this was made, they're in British Hong Kong right now. Yeah, the handover was what, 1997? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't remember. I mean, they do kind of make a point that, like, if they go beyond the borders into mainland China, they're in trouble. Although this never happened, so I don't yeah, know why they warned him about it. I don't know why they warned him about it. Janice tips off Helmer and Rollins about the Kumite's location, and they arrive to intercept Dukes, but after a minor scuffle, they ultimately agree to allow Dukes to compete in the final day of the competition, as long as he goes back to America and then goes on his various action movie spy missions afterwards. Yeah, and they start to get really into it. Yeah! Woo! sports. Yeah. Chong Lee kills his next opponent in the ring, which turns the crowd against him, even though they're there to watch an underground illegal martial arts tournament. However, Chong Lee is fearful about this amazing Westerner who tearing up the place, so he conceals a salt pill in his waistband. When uh, Dukes gains an advantage in his match against Lee, Lee throws the crushed salt pill in his face and temporarily blinds him. However, since Duke studied ninjutsu, he is able to fight without seeing and is able to overcome his handicap and defeat Chong Lee. The film ends with Duke saying goodbye to Kent and Jackson. He tells Jackson that he loves him. He gives him a kiss on the cheek. We were watching it and we were like, I was like, you know what? Like, honestly, it's like they have they have more chemistry than you know, Janice does. And they're talking and he's like, I love you. And I'm like, aw, now kiss. And then he kisses him on the cheek. And we were like, woohoo, yeah. <laughs> and he goes back to America. The yeah, end. Yeah, that, that's the movie. It was fun. All right. Let's start with the background of the film. Uh, this there is, is one? <laughs> yeah. 
This is produced by Canon Films. They are best known for a string of not very good 80s action movies, many of which went direct-to-video or might as well have. They did not the original Death Wish, but all its sequels. They did Break-In and Break-In 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, Jean-Claude Van Damme has a cameo as a background dancer in the first Break-In, and many a laugh has been had about his attempts to breakdance. You think he'd be better at it. He's kind of flexible. They did Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, one of the worst superhero movies ever made. They did Masters of the Universe. They did, uh, yeah, you, you get the idea. Yeah, I do. I mean, I've never seen most, well, maybe parts of the movies you've just listed, but I know what they would be like. <laughs> the film is based on a 1980 interview with Frank Dukes in Black Belt Magazine. Uh, in this interview, Dukes claimed that he won the Kumite, an elite underground martial arts tournament organized by the secretive IFAA and held in the Bahamas. He said that he won a, both a trophy and a ceremonial sword in this competition. However, he sold the, the, the sword in order to uh, secure some funds to rescue some orphans that were going to be uh, sold into human trafficking. Wow, you know, maybe he just, you know, jerk himself off a little bit harder there. Yeah, he said that the contest featured all sorts of fighting disciplines, and Duke said that he won because he didn't have one style, but he married the best parts of all the styles into an elite style that only he knows. Okay. Dukes wrote the first draft of the screenplay. A revised version was completed by Sheldon Ledich. Dukes was very incensed by this, completely unaware that um, Hollywood movies have lots of script revisions before they shoot them. He almost took the producers to court over the changes. Yeah, that man has a massive ego. Uh, I found this quote by Ledich uh, describing his working relationship with Frank Dukes that I think is relevant. Well, and I'm quoting. I had known Frank Dukes for a number of months before I came up with the idea for Bloodsport. Frank told me a lot of tall tales, most of which turned out to be bullshit. But his stories about participating in the so-called Kumite uh, event sounded like a great idea for a movie. There was one guy who he introduced me to named Richard Bender who claimed to have actually been at the Kumite event who swore everything that Frank told me was true. A few years later, this guy had a falling out with Frank and confessed to me that everything he told me about the Kumite was a lie. <laughs> Frank had coached him in what to say. The film was shot largely in the Kowloon Walled City before its demolition in 1993. Dukes was on board to handle the fight choreography. He has gone on record as saying that Jean-Claude Van Damme was a great performer, but a terrible fighter and not terribly masculine. They apparently had a lot of heated exchanges on the set of the film, and this culminated in Dukes challenging Van Damme to a fight on a rooftop of a 60-story building. However, once Van Damme got there, according to Dukes, Van Damme was so intimidated by Dukes's form and discipline that he immediately backed off, and he was meek as a kitten for the rest of the shoot. That sounds like bullshit to me. Oh, we'll be getting back to that. <laughs> yeah, oh my god. Not terribly masculine? I mean... John Claude Van Damme is like a martial arts sex symbol. He has a nickname. The film was directed by Newt Arnold. This is the most prominent thing with his name in the uh, in the final tagline, although he was the assistant director on Godfather 2 and apparently also worked on Last Action Hero and Blade Runner in some capacity. Canon Films was displeased with the finished movie. They felt that it was poorly directed and edited I mean, and very it, sloppy. It is kind of poorly put together all those weirdly extended flashbacks not enough fight scenes spread out oh this isn't the final version of the film 
the, the one that we saw has been fixed up a little. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Jean-Claude Van Damme had a lot uh, riding on this. He, uh, this is the first film that he was the star of, and he begged the producers for a chance to re-edit the film himself and turn it into something workable. Aw, that's so sweet. Yeah, and, you know, since he, unlike the director, he had more of a background in, you know, martial arts and, and, and such and so, he thought that he would have a better idea of how to edit the thing. I saw an interview where he, he was almost moved to tears over how terrible the first cut of the film was, talking about how all these, these random clashing shots where they'd have him, like, jump kicking and then cut, cut to his face for no reason and there was no spatial geography. Oh, poor Jean-Claude Van Damme. And, uh, yeah, a, a lot of the fights in this film are sloppy, uh, even still. I mean, there are a lot of instances. Anytime somebody, like, knees somebody in a face, you can see it's clearly, like, half a foot away from them. But I, I do think that I do think that Van Damme did the best he could with the footage he had at the angles they were shot in. Because, I mean, for the most part, it's, it flows. Yeah, I mean, there, there is fun. Yeah, there is a visceral intensity to it. Yeah, there's so much, you know, sweat and blood going everywhere. It's called blood sport for a reason. Cannon thought that the film was improved, but they still held it in development hell for another year or so. They initially released it in Europe for a couple of months, and then once it started catching on there, then they put it out in the United States. The budget was uh, most estimated at being $1.5 million, although some say it was around $2. Uh, it grossed $65 million. That's a healthy return. Yes, it was. And once again, it made uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme into a star. Uh, he was paid 25000 for the role. And since he had signed a contract with Canon Films, he was contractually obligated to receive that exact pay for the remainder of his Canon Films. So they got a pretty good deal out of him. Wow. Poor guy. <laughs> and while it was successful in theaters, by 1990, more people had seen it on late-night cable or on home video, which is where this film has had most of its afterlife. By 1989, the VHS copy had sold 150,000 units. That's a lot. Yeah, especially for back then. It got terrible reviews. Of course it did. And most people criticized it for having a cookie-cutter plot that the storytellers barely cared about, which is fair. Bad, sloppy, amateurish acting by people who are not terribly experienced as thespians, also on point. If someone said something nice about it, it was largely because of uh, Van Damme's athleticism. Yeah, he gets to show it off a lot. The film got a Golden Raspberry nomination for Worst New Star for Jean-Claude Van Damme. Aww. Unfortunately, it lost to Ronald McDonald <laughs> for Mac and Me. I didn't even know that was a movie. Okay, yeah, but honestly, it's probably a good thing that... Uh, you are unaware of Mac and Me. Oh, no, please don't make me watch you for this podcast. <laughs> oh, I would not subject you to Mac and Me. But I will tell you that it is a ripoff of E.T. that was funded by McDonald's, and it's just a really long advertisement for McDonald's. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah, the alien's <laughs> name is Mac. Of course it is. So, so a bunch of little kids and Ronald McDonald have to help the alien go home, and somehow buying Happy Meals is a way to do that. Okay, aside from the fight choreography, uh, a lot of people talk about this film's soundtrack, which is arguably the most 80s thing about it, which is oh, saying something. Yeah. yeah, it is a very synthesizer-heavy score by Paul Herzog, who uh, surprisingly only has a couple of credits, like four or five. Hmm. He also scored Kickboxer, which was Van Damme's follow-up to this one. The soundtrack was only put out in a limited release, so these days it is a well-sought-after collector's item. 
after Herzog dropped out of the industry, he uh, focused on teaching English and music theory. However, he recently came out of retirement. In 2009, he issued an album of like completed versions of stuff he had written during his soundtrack days, but never quite finished. And in 2015, he put out an album of new music that uh, owed a lot to, you know, uh, synth-heavy scores for Bloodsport and Kickboxer. I think... Like, he noticed that, uh, you know, synth-heavy 80s scores were coming back into vogue. Like, people were watching Stranger Things and, you know, uh, Tangerine... Yeah, It Follows and Tangerine Dream got a second wind. And John Carpenter emerged from the shadows and basically started doing, like, <laughs> the same thing. So he was like, eh, I should get a piece of that. Yeah, good yeah. for him. Maybe he saw how much his CDs were uh, fetching on eBay. And he's like, I need a piece of that. That's, that's <laughs> not fair. <laughs> yeah. However, I have... Up to this point, overlooked the power ballads by Stan Bush. Now, Bloodsport has a training montage because of course it does. it's an 80s action movie, and there's just this really, really cheesy, over the top cornball uh, power ballad by Bush that's about learning to fight and overcoming your obstacles, and you're the underdog, but you can race up those steps, baby. Uh, of course. I mean, you have to have one. I mean, uh, nothing is subtle about Bloodsport's score because nothing is subtle about Bloodsport, but the soundtrack does work for what it is. It was I, good. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it'd be effective workout music. Yeah, for a movie like Bloodsport, Ryan has like four pages of notes. Yeah, I <laughs> I did my homework on this one. Yeah, I did. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's talk about the the cast for this. First off, Jean Claude Van Damme. Of course. This is his first starring role, but he wasn't breaking, and he first demonstrated some action movie chops in one scene in No Return, No Surrender, another Canon film's cheapy. The Canon producers picked him up for stardom because they thought that he would appeal equally to both men and women. Yeah. Uh, he could be an aspirational figure because he's ridiculously jacked, like a lot of the action movie stars at the time, your Arnold Schwarzeneggers and your Sylvester Stallones. But unlike them, he's also conventionally attractive. Yeah, he's very handsome. I mean, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger got it back in the day. I definitely don't begrudge anybody who would like to fuck uh, 1980s Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he's almost like a cartoon version of a muscle man. <laughs> I mean, that's why he's so likable. <laughs> like, like, even if Van Damme wasn't ridiculously cut, he does have, like, classical movie star face. Yeah, he has, like, a very angelic now, just about everything that he would reprise in his later roles uh, shows up here. His fondness for splits and in Tai Chi and making lots of goofy faces while he's screaming. Whoa! Yeah, he rivals Schwarzenegger in that regard, if nothing else. <laughs> and also a superfluous shot of his ass. That happens a lot. Yeah, I mean, like what you'd see is him putting his underwear back on after the non-existent sex scene. Also, his love interest is very frequently a sassy female reporter. In Street Fighter, they make Chung Lee a sassy female reporter just so it fits into the Van Damme mold. Besides Van Damme, the person we should be talking about the most is Bolo Young as Chong Lee. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah, Bolo. He was in Enter the Dragon. Playing largely the same character. Yeah, except he actually talks in this one. He doesn't talk much. Uh, He has very little dialogue, and almost all of it is lifted from Bruce Lee movies. This just sort of be, like, callbacks for the nerds in the back row to recognize. Yeah, I mean, he looks pretty much the same in Bloodsport that he did in Enter the Dragon. I feel like his peck only got more massive. He's the the big-tittied guy who, you know, kills the people, and he's not the Irish guy. Yeah, yeah, he's the (laughs) other one. Here's the thing. He brings shame to us all. (laughs) Yeah, in Bloodsport, Bolo Young is almost 50. 
Damn, I would have thought he hadn't even hit 40. <laughs> you had good. Yeah, and he, he, he's, he's just so delightful in this. I mean, he has a long resume, and but it's mostly Chinese action movies. If American audiences know him, it's for End of the Dragon in this. And he just revels in his bad guy, do Oh, yeah, he's clearly having a great time. <laughs> yeah, he's just sneering at the camera. He can't twiddle a mustache because he doesn't have one, but he's doing the whole other snidely whiplash thing. Yeah, and he, like, takes Jackson's headband and, like, wears it as a trophy. <laughs> Instead of twiddling his mustache, he just grimaces a lot and just flexes his pants. Oh, my God, yeah, he does that all the time. <laughs> Bolo Young, once again, he didn't really do too many American films after this one, but he was pretty prolific in Chinese martial arts movies. He's in his 70s now and he's retired, but he didn't retire until pretty recently. He was doing it well into his 60s. Well, you know what? Good for him. He deserves to enjoy his retirement out of how much joy he's brought to people over these many decades. Yeah, and now the third most prominent character in this film is Donald Gibb as Jackson. People probably know him best as Ogre in the Revenge of the Nerds movies. Okay, I have never seen Revenge of the Nerds. They haven't dated very well, even if you can get past the rape, and how can you get past the rape? Yeah, I have no desire to watch Revenge of the Nerds. He is the only character in this film to appear in 1996's direct-to-video sequel, Bloodsport 2, The Next Kumite. And does he play the same character? Yes, he plays the same character. And why didn't Jean-Claude Van Damme come back? Probably had better shit to do than appear in a direct-to-video Bloodsport sequel. His career was still doing pretty well in 1996. Okay, I'm guessing it's bad. I haven't seen it. I have heard nothing but terrible things about it. There is also a Bloodsport 3 and 4. Well, of course there are. Yeah, they're uh, also direct-to-video and probably terrible even by the standards one would apply to Bloodsport. Yeah, at least, you know, Bloodsport was fun. We had a good time watching it. That's the difference. Yeah, there are a lot of things about it that are just sort of lightning in a bottle, though. I mean, you could make another formulaic action movie tournament type of deal and do, like, a shot-for-shot Bloodsport type of thing, and it probably wouldn't work. There's just, like, so many little things. I mean, not only does the bad acting make a lot of the lines unintentionally funny, but a good number of the intentionally funny lines are actually funny. Yeah, we were laughing watching it. Yeah, we were laughing throughout. Yeah, and for, like, the good reason, not like, holy fuck, what are we doing watching this movie? Well, I mean, it's only 90 minutes. We, yeah. we didn't have enough time to regret it. Before we move on, should probably talk at least a little bit about uh, Leah Ayers as the token love interest. I mean, once again, there's no chemistry between her and Van Damme. Yeah, there's no particular reason for her to be in this. She's really pointless. Like I said, she's there to make it not a sausage fest. Yeah, I looked at her resume. Besides appearing in similar films like this, where she's the only woman who speaks, she does a lot of TV work. Uh, she basically dropped out of the industry in 1998, which is probably around when she turned 35. From what I could find out about her, she is now a yoga instructor and has written a number of books about how to teach children yoga. So, you know, interesting left her, but she seems to be doing okay. Yeah, why not? All right, in addition to the direct-to-video sequels, there was a loose remake of Bloodsport called The Quest. It came out in 1996, and it was Jean-Claude Van Damme's directorial debut. Aw, he tried to be a director? Uh, he has directed a number of things since then. Okay, well then good for him. I, I, I regret, I retract my, my mean statement. It's basically Bloodsport again, is except it? the trophy is a golden dragon and Roger Moore is in it. What? Roger Moore? He would have been really old at that, that time. Yeah, 1996. I don't think he was combatant. The most noteworthy thing about the quest is that Frank Duke sued Van Damme for it. 
Now, they were still friends at that point. Uh, Dukes had done uh, fight choreography for a number of uh, Van Damme's follow-up films. However, Dukes claimed that the screenplay for The Quest plagiarizes a 1991 script that he wrote entitled Enter the Next Dragon, the Kumite. Okay, he's going to get his ass sued off for that before he even finishes doing Junk on Van Damme. <laughs> Dukes did get a story credit in the quest, but Dukes testified that there was a contract acknowledging that he wrote the quest screenplay, that that the film is based upon his script, and that large passages were lifted wholesale from the script without crediting him. Sued for about $1.5 Now, he added that the contract and the manuscript couldn't be reproduced in court because they were lost in an earthquake that devastated his apartment building. Now, every other room in the apartment was fine, but his, because he's so unlucky, was trashed to the point where all evidence that the quest is a ripoff of something he wrote in 1991 was lost. Yeah, really if I was the judge, I would throw him out of the court. Okay, and with that, we're going to go into the life of Frank Dukes. Oh, boy! <laughs> now, I-, I wanted to talk a lot about Bloodsport before we get to this, because a, a lot of the analytical uh, pieces I encountered about Bloodsport, and yes, there are analytical pieces about Bloodsport out there. You know there. what? You can write about just about anything. A lot of them are overwhelmed by Frank Dukes. As I said in my intro, the story behind this movie is, in its own way, more fascinating than the movie itself. I would watch a film about Frank Dukes, alleged charlatan. I say alleged because he's very litigious. Yeah, you know what? He'll find this podcast and he'll sue us. Well, I, I threw the word alleged in there, so it's fine. <laughs> okay, what we do know for sure about Frank Dukes is that he served in the Marines during the 1970s, and he does have some kind of martial arts background. That much is true. Now, in the early 1980s, he opened a dojo, basically riding the wave of increased interest in the martial arts during the 1980s. The dojo was opened in Woodland Hills, California. And, I mean, I grew up in an environment where there were always, like, karate studios in your local strip mall. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it never occurred to me that that was, like, a fairly recent phenomenon. But, yeah, it is. After the Black Belt interview, Dukes became something of a minor celebrity. His dojo became very popular, and he trained a lot of action movie actors there, which is how he got his inroads into Hollywood. At this point, I should probably point out that American dojos have no regulation. Like becoming a pastor, any random asshole can claim to be a martial arts master and open a taekwondo studio. Thinking of the scene from Napoleon Dynamite where Tiff goes to do karate and the guy's like, bow to your sensei. <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> Anyway, Frank Dukes invented something he called Dukes Ryu Ninjutsu, the first American form of ninjutsu. Now, it is very, very common for American dojo proprietors to claim that they have invented combat discipline. And it is also common for American dojo proprietors to exaggerate their credentials, which is what we will be talking about right next. Okay. (laughs) Allegations that Frank Dukes has made over the years, most of which in his 1996 autobiography. Oh, boy, that must have been fun. All right. From 1975 to 1980, Dukes has claimed that he has run hundreds of covert missions as a Marine in Southeast Asia. Now, if you're not up on your American history, 1975, when he was running his missions in Vietnam, was several years after the war ended. You know, stolen valor is a bad thing. 
I did want to say that there are fewer things that American society lionizes more than military service, and there are fewer things that it vilifies more than falsifying heroic acts. Dukes claims that he has won the Medal of Honor, and among the exploits he brags about in his autobiography, he says that he charged into a Viet Cong machine gun nest, killing over a hundred enemy fighters once he got a hold of the weapon and turned the tables. He also said that he once crawled on his hands and knees through barbed wire for several miles to rescue a baby that he then handed off to Taoist priests. He really loves to jerk himself off, doesn't he? I'm sorry I keep saying, you know, that phrase, but come on. Oh, we're not over yet. What? No. He should have been like a writer and and like a real writer and just have a fictional character, you know, we can call him Banks Fuchs or whatever. According to Dukes, in 1981, he was recruited by William Casey, head of the CIA, to run secret missions for the CIA between... (laughs) 1981 and 1987. He made this allegation in 1987, several months after Casey died. Convenient. Yes, he also said that he was recruited at a urinal, like he was taking a piss and William Casey was standing right next to him and they started talking about, I don't know, like running covert missions and he was like, I'm William Casey, head of the CIA, motherfucker. Okay, so I'm a woman. I've never used a urinal before. Isn't it like not, you know, isn't it bad etiquette to start talking to another man at the urinal? Oh, yes. And it is also poor urinal etiquette to not put a urinal between you and the other man unless you kind of can't not. Yeah, like even I know that. And that is the least believable part of the story, apparently. <laughs> Okay, during this time, Duke says that he killed Soviet operatives, uh, infiltrated the Chinese mafia. He's a white guy. What did he do? Just put on a yellow face or something? Trained Ukrainian special forces (laughs) and also rescued a boatload of orphans from pirates in the Philippines. He loves orphans. Frank Dukes' allegations met the cold, hard wall of reality after Bloodsport came out and raised his profile considerably. Uh, There was an L.A. Times expose written by Joe Johnson where he looked into Dukes' background and found, this is going to shock you, no evidence of any of these exploits. Oh my god, he was lying? You mean he was lying? (laughs) Once again, Dukes was a Marine. However, it was found that Dukes never left the continental United States during his time as a Marine. While Dukes has frequently bragged about the number of injuries he sustained over the course of his duties, the only known instance of him being injured during his stint as a Marine is the time he fell off a truck while he was painting it. Oh, so he was like... You know, maintenance guy. Nothing wrong with that, but... No, no, no. The, the guys who are hosing down trucks in West Germany are doing their job, too. Yeah. <laughs> Dukes claimed that he was trained in ninjutsu by uh, Senzo Tanaka, like in the Bloodsport film. Johnson could find no evidence that Tanaka ever existed. Dukes claimed that Tanaka died in 1975. Johnson couldn't find records of anyone in the entire state of California named Tanaka who died. Dukes then claimed that Senzo's Tanaka was secretly buried by a clan of ninjas, which is something a 12-year-old who's read too many comic books would make up. Yeah, and also, that's just a big mess right there. Dukes claimed that Johnson was uh, having an affair with his wife and was spreading malicious lies about him in order to trick his wife into divorcing him. Which is a, a weird counter to that. And my question is, does he actually have a wife? Like, is she real? 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, probably you not know, just a blow-up doll he keeps in the closet. Dukes also published a photo of himself in his Marine Corps uniform wearing his many ribbons. However, the ribbons were army ribbons, not marine ones. You know, you can buy shit online, right? Yeah, I mean, also he was wearing the ribbons in the wrong order. If you're gonna, you know, go for the whole stolen valor thing, you should at least... Try harder. I mean, yeah, I don't know what order the ribbons go in either, but I would at least look them up. I'm going to pretend to be like Hulk Hogan, John Wayne, Captain America. Yeah, I would just ask my dad. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Dukes has frequently claimed that the accusations leveled against him are lies made by rival dojo owners seeking to discredit him. Among his detractors include the director of Central Intelligence, Robert Gates, and also General Norman Schwarzkopf Jr. <laughs> Why these men had to comment about this one way or the other is beyond you know me. I bet somebody asked him. Yeah, I guess they had to. In 1998, Dukes lost his lawsuit against Jean-Claude Van Damme over the quest. The next year, he lost a 1999 lawsuit uh, against Soldier of Fortune, who had accused uh, Dukes of falsifying his military record after the uh, LA Times. They were the first major periodical to do so. Dukes got a 2010 documentary called Put Your Dukes Up, in which he tries to refute all of the character assassination. The newest whopper he gave us was Dukes claimed that his father was once kidnapped and that the police didn't believe his story on account of his reputation. He then had to take care of it personally. You know, I thought you were going to tell me that he killed Osama bin Laden or something. <laughs> uh, he has apparently dialed back a little uh, bit. Well, you know what, that's because, you know, we live in this time where literally everything is just a Google question away and there are people whose like whole like jobs are devoted or hobbies are devoted to finding and basically revealing people who do stolen valor you know he can't be jay gatsby no i suppose he can't since this is 2020 one thing that we have to talk about with blood sport is that it is frequently cited as donald trump's favorite movie I mean, honestly, I'm kind of impressed because, you know, that man probably does so much coke in between, you know, allegedly, <laughs> I don't want to get sued by the Donald. Uh, Donald um, says he's never done any drugs at all. Okay, well, I was going to say he does cocaine in between molesting underage girls. Well, the molesting underage girls thing is on record. Yeah. Donald Trump's Bloodsport fandom comes entirely from a profile in The New Yorker, uh, written in 1997 by Mark Singer. Basically, Singer followed Trump onto an airplane, and they watched the, the movie en route. Trump had one of his sons just sort of stand by and fast-forward to the good parts. Uh, it was Eric. He was 13 at the time. Yeah, I mean, both of his sons, well, the older ones at least, they look like uh, bullies from a bad 90s uh, made-for-TV Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, I read this oral history about Donald Trump's fondness for Bloodsport, and uh, a number of people commented on it, including the screenwriter, um, Ellen Ledich, who, uh, he routinely gets shit about this. Like, his friends introduce him as, hey, this guy wrote Donald Trump's favorite oh, movie. Oh, poor man! <laughs> and his, his main comment about it is that the blood sport appeals directly to the id. That's probably why Trump likes it as much as he does. Yeah, well, because he's dumb as shit. 
Singer has said that, no, he doesn't think that Bloodsport is Donald Trump's favorite movie. Uh, Trump has said on many instances of that that Citizen Kane is his favorite film. And although he has occasionally said that it was either Goodfellas or The uh, Godfather, which I believe both of those because Donald Trump does sort of affect like a uh, cartoon gangster persona. Yeah. Yeah, that made me uh, dive into what uh, other presidents have said of their favorite movies. Ooh, all right, let's hear it. Yeah. What was Abraham Lincoln's favorite movie? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh. Okay, the earliest president to have any kind of film opinion is Franklin D. Roosevelt, okay. who was apparently very fond of Mickey Mouse cartoons. Aw, that's cute. John F. Kennedy is really into the James Bond franchise. You don't say. Yeah, particularly from Russia with Love. Gerald Ford, apparently, uh, Home Alone is his favorite. Aw, that's cute. For Bill Clinton, it was high noon. Wouldn't have been my guess. No, I figured he would have liked some, like, I don't know, sex comedy or movie musical. Well, he is a Rhodes Scholar. Okay, that's true. Uh, for George W. Bush, it was Field of Dreams, which I believe readily. Oh, yeah, definitely a man who wants daddy's approval. Uh, he's also apparently very fond of the uh, Austin Powers franchise. <laughs> I believe that, too. And Obama's favorite is The Godfather, which, that's basic. Come on, Obama. You know, give me something better than that. Yeah, throw us a curve. Roosevelt being into Mickey Mouse is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what about Richard Nixon? Richard Nixon would talk at length about how much he loved Patton to anyone who'd listen, which, once again, I'm not surprised he was into Patton. No, not at all. I mean, I figured his list would be kind of weird considering that he had, like, a list of enemies and politics on it. Nixon is also apparently very fond of the um, musical comedy uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. I'm just imagining he started singing. Well, I mean, Cagney sings that song in the film, so not going to be weirder than that. <laughs> And with that out of the way, let's move on to uh, the legacy of this film. Jean-Claude Van Damme was a star for a while. A lot of his follow-up films are loose remakes of Bloodsport. However, after a series of flops in the mid-90s, after 1999, he's mostly a direct-to-video guy. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, yeah. wasn't like some of his direct-to-video uh, films on the best action movies of the year, that AV article series? I, I feel like he had at least a couple movies on there. Yeah, some people say that his career was sabotaged by a cocaine habit he picked up uh, around the uh, early 1990s. That'll do that to you. He also turned away a lot of opportunities. Uh, for one thing, he was offered a role in The Expendables, and it's really weird that he's not in any of those. Yeah, that surprises me, too. I mean, not that those movies are great, but you know what? If you're an aging, older action star, take it. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find a reason he turned them down, but apparently he did. Uh, his part went to Dolph Lundgren. I mean, honestly, I think for a while I would get those two confused. Jean-Claude Van Damme frequently became a um, punching bag in the Belgian and uh, French press, uh, largely because he, he forgot a lot of his French and sort of had to relearn the language. And in interviews, started giving these aphorisms that sounded really bizarre to French readers. Uh, also, he had a thing for bragging about how he can crack walnuts on his butt cheeks. <laughs> Yeah, there's a documentary about him, directed by a fan called JCVD. I think it came out in 2008. And that <laughs> tried to rehabilitate. I, I did not look for footage of him cracking walnuts in his butt cheeks. I don't know. I, I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't now. Yeah, four pages of notes, and I don't know if he can actually do it. I mean, why would he lie about it? 
I'll take him at his word. Well, you know, I feel like it's one of those things that you people be like, all right, yeah, 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 do it. Can you really do it? You know? I mean, I can tie a cherry stem with my tongue. <laughs> Uh, anyways, he's been trying to get a uh, a remake of Bloodsport off the ground since at least 2011, but it's it. yeah, it's been in it's been in development hell ever since. And yeah, I'd see it too. He's 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 59, but he's looking tight. He looks all right. Yeah, I, I mean, he was in that um, that commercial a few years ago where he does split on the moving trucks, and it was really cool. Yeah, I bet he still got it at least the, uh, well enough to do an action movie. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger is still doing stuff. Same thing with Stallone. Why not? Why not, indeed. Okay, and that's everything in my notes. Uh, is there anything that you've been panting to sound off on about Bloodsport that we haven't gotten to yet? No, it was fun, and I'm glad that we did this one after Ron Lola Run, because we were like, getting into all sorts of like nitty-gritty existentialism. Now, we need to talk about a movie where people hit things. They hit them very hard. Yeah, lots of blood. It wasn't as violent as I thought it was going to be. Maybe that's because I've been watching some, like, you know, The Raid and, you know, The Night Comes for Us, like, Indonesian action movies, which are, like, really violent. Oh, yeah. I mean, even compared to um, martial arts films from that period, like, Jackie Chan was doing, like, Police Story, which blows Bloodsport out of the water in terms of just physicality and danger. But, yeah, yeah, despite the fact that it's... Not like on paper, there's nothing special about this movie, but it's become a cult hit anyways. And I, I, I think it's just a, a confluence of all the various things, some happening accidentally that just happen to be in the right place at the right time. You know, Jean Claude Van Damme's bizarre splits and Tai Chi stuff, the pumping 80s soundtrack, Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds being this beefy Bolo biker dude, Yang. Bolo Young <laughs> popping his pecs, like everything just serendipitously came together. It was a, it was a goat rodeo session. Oh, I thought of one thing. Has anyone asked Forrest Whitaker about being in this movie because he's the only person in it besides, you know, Bolo Young on his own turf and Jean-Claude Van Damme who's like a big mate. Yeah, no idea. I'm just wildly speculating here. Uh, I'm I'm under the assumption that Forrest Whitaker just saw it as another day at the office and he just moved on to his next gig afterwards. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't really get to do anything interesting in it besides Kate Jean-Claude Van Damme through Hong Kong. Yeah, he's a walking plot point. Well, if that's it, that's it. Yeah. And with that, another episode in the can. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. I have no idea what we're going to do next. Yeah. yeah, well, it's your turn to pick, so we'll find out then. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Bye. Hi, this is Ryan from the future to issue a correction. If you're a cinephile, which if you're listening to the show, you probably are, you're already aware that the first film opinion from a president was Woodrow Wilson's comments about Birth of a Nation. I'm pointing this out because I figured if I don't, the comments will. Might do a full episode on Birth of a Nation later on down the road if I'm feeling particularly masochistic, but don't hold your breath.